Welcome to the Valley Bear Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, One Hit Wonders. Did you know that there are five books in the Bible that have only one chapter? They are so good, so important, and full of significance that just a single chapter of writing was given a title and included among the 66 books of the Bible. In this series, we'll discover what made that one chapter of these books such a wonder. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Well, again, welcome to everybody here in the house as well as to those who are online. We're glad that you're here with us today. And we're in the second week of this series called One Hit Wonders. Last week we kicked it off. We're going to be here for a couple of weeks and we hope that you'll come back and hear all the messages. Now, you know, a a musical one-hit wonder is a song that became a massive hit, but that artist never had anything else after that hit. Now, I'm going to tell you, I I sort of have a dilemma Um, because I think Rick Astley had a one-hit wonder. If you remember, never going to give you up, you know, so uh, um, I'm tempted to sing it, but I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) Only if you'll sing with me, all right? Never going to give you up, never going to let you down, never going to run around and desert you. All right, good job. <laughs> but, you know, according to the strict definition of a one-hit wonder, he did have another hit. In fact, in the, in the UK and Europe, he had more than another hit. So, uh, you know, to me, there's a conflict there. But, but you know, the truth is that uh, we're not going to talk about musical one-hit wonders. We're going to talk about biblical one-hit wonders. And so, uh, a biblical one-hit wonder is basically there's five of them. There are five books in the Bible that are one, just that one chapter long. Now last week we talked about the Old Testament book, the book of Obadiah. He was a prophet. Today we're going to talk about the uh, book of Philemon. It's in the New Testament. It's one chapter. So uh, remember that many of the books in the New Testament were actually letters that the Apostle Paul or other apostles wrote to the churches to give them instruction, encouragement, even to exhort them or deal with bad behavior. And so uh, the letter of Philemon is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote around 60 AD to a man whose name was Philemon. And uh, it, uh, we understand that at this time in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul, he was literally a, a prisoner at, in Rome at the time. Um, just a reminder, uh, the Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. He was arrested for preaching the good news about Jesus. Now, Since he was a Roman citizen by birth, once he was arrested and they threatened to to give him corporal punishment, uh, he basically appealed, which any Roman citizen could do. He he appealed to the higher authorities, basically to the the leaders of Rome. And so uh, he began a process of being shipped off to Rome from Jerusalem and from his prison, it was more like house arrest, but from that, he writes many of his last letters. And in this letter, he is writing to a man whose name is Philemon and actually to the whole family and to the church. So it's Philemon, the letter is addressed to Philemon, his wife, Aphia, his son, Archippus, and to the actual church in Colossae because the church met in Philemon's house. 
you know, again, for the first couple of centuries of Christendom, first couple of centuries, a hundred years, several hundred years of Christianity, there were no church buildings. Churches met in the homes uh, of believers. And so uh, Paul is writing to all of these folks. Now, the purpose of Paul's letter to Philemon is to deal with a very sensitive subject. Even though Philemon was a Christian, he was also an owner of slaves. One of his slaves' name was Onesimus, and apparently Onesimus ran away and stole something from Philemon when he ran away. Now, under Roman law, if a slave runs away, you can actually punish them by execution, by death. So, that's what's going on here. Now, somehow, uh, Onesimus and Paul get connected. And it, it is possible that Onesimus had seen Paul at Philemon's house when uh, Paul had visited that, the church there at Colossae on a previous trip. And so he knew Paul. And maybe somehow he found out that Paul was under house arrest in Rome. So he sought him out. So after running away, Onesimus would at some time have realized that he was in a lot of trouble and he needed help. And since he knew Paul, and he knew Paul was a friend of Philemon, he thought maybe Paul could help resolve this problem that he had created. And the reality is this, is that Paul was more than willing to help. In fact, through their friendship, the best thing in the world happens to Onesimus. He becomes a follower of Jesus. So, at some point in this friendship, then, Onesimus reveals that uh, indeed he has uh, run away. He's not there on loan from Philemon. He's run away. Now, look, big picture. We all know slavery and human trafficking is despicable. We know it's sinful. But unfortunately, in the first century, it was just the way of the world. Now, Paul knows once he realizes that Onesimus has run away, he has to do something, and he does. He writes this letter, but what you'll see is that uh, he does this, and it's not really about returning someone's slave property. It's, it's for a far greater reason. It's about winning Philemon's acceptance of Onesimus as his brother in Christ, even though he's a slave. Now, with that understanding, uh, we can see that quite possibly Paul and Philemon might have a disagreement about what to do about Onesimus. Um, you know, the reality is we all deal with uh, disagreements all the time. I mean, we have them all the time. Uh, I I'm a Red Sox fan. There's probably some uh, New York Yankee fans in here. Yeah, I got a thumbs down back there uh, from, from uh, somebody who is not a Red Sox fan. So we all have disagreements. But it's how we handle our disagreements that actually is a direct result of our following of Jesus. In other words, of our discipleship. Most specifically, who or what has been discipling us will determine how we handle all kinds of things in life, including conflict. So let me pause here and talk about being a follower of Jesus or being a disciple. To be a disciple of Jesus means we need to immerse ourselves in following the ways of Jesus and his teaching instead of following the ways of the world. Now that means, that means we need to, to tune in 
to the B-I-B-L-E and not M-S-N-B-C or Fox or CNN. You, you know, really, let's be honest. Whatever we're consuming, it's discipling us. I mean, whether it's uh, social media or the news media or a genre of music or a podcast or video games or just gossiping with our friends, the more of that we take in, the more of that content forms us even though we have been saved through our faith in Jesus Christ. So we have to, we have to wrestle with the fact and, and deal with it. If we're going to be di disciples of Jesus Christ, what is discipling is it, us? Is it the Word of God? Is that discipling us? Is it forming our values and our beliefs? So, so we have to think that through. So that's why we teach God's Word here. But that's why we also want you to become self-feeders because if you if you only hear biblical content on Sunday morning and you go the rest of the week without actually opening the Bible for yourself and reading it and listening to it and letting it influence you then truly uh, you're you're not being discipled by the word of God so uh, I, that's why we encourage you to uh, learn to feed yourself just like mom and dad wanted you to learn to feed yourself when you were a toddler as followers of Jesus Christ, we also have to learn to feed ourselves on God's Word. So we're going to look here at the book of Philemon because it's going to disciple us as followers of Jesus in how to handle conflict. So the first thing that I want to talk about is godly persuasion. Now, when you read this short letter, you'll see that it's a great lesson in dealing with conflict. Uh, the Apostle Paul followed the method that the ancient Greek teachers taught, and it contains three points. You're supposed to build rapport, you're supposed to persuade the mind, and you're supposed to move the emotions. So let's just walk through how he does this in this letter. Let's look first at building rapport. So listen to what he writes Listen how he builds rapport with Philemon. I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, and I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it is the right thing for you to do, but because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Now with our 21st century cynicism that creeps into our lives, uh, we may think that uh, Paul's just buttering up Philemon here. But he's being genuine. He's writing to Philemon because he wants to talk to him. And this was the way you communicated in that first century culture. Now, Paul reveals something that 
he does for Philemon. And in verse 4, he tells us that he prays for him. Now, now that shouldn't be surprising because that's what Christ's followers need to do. We need to pray for one another, uh, whether we're closely connected or distantly connected. And quite honestly, we can't tell if Paul and Philemon, how close they were. They knew each other for sure, and maybe they had been close. Obviously, Paul was an apostle. He oversaw all of these churches that he had helped plant. And so he had a relationship with them, but obviously now he was in, under house arrest in Rome. So he prays for him. And then uh, his prayer tells us specifically that he knows about Philemon. He knows about his life. He knows about his faith. He knows about his activity as a church follower. And in verse 7, he shares with Philemon a genuine expression of what his leadership and friendship has met, meant both to Paul personally, but also to the church gathered in Colossae that meets in Philemon's house. And then in verse 8 and 9, he sets up the favor that he's asking of Philemon. Now, again, in our culture, this may feel a little manipulative, but again, it was considered courteous cultural behavior in Paul's world because it was, it was a bit indirect and he was sincere, not wanting to be heavy-handed. And so he, he asked for that favor that, that he makes very clear that he's getting ready to ask it. And then in verse 10, that's when he makes the big re reveal of what the favor is. He knows where Onesimus is. He, he's found Onesimus. And, and in fact, Onesimus, the runaway slave, is actually living there with Paul, serving Paul. And in fact, there's been quite a development he shares to, with Philemon that Onesimus has become his spiritual son. He's, he's led him to Christ. He's led him to saving faith. And, and so Paul has built this rapport, and now he wants to try to persuade Philemon. So he wants to persuade his mind. And, and this is what he writes next. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. I wanted to keep him here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news, and he would have helped me on your behalf, but, if I, didn't want to, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. So, Paul is beginning to explain that Onesimus has been helpful to him, and thus, because he's become a, not only a servant of Paul under his imprisonment, that if they are mutual brothers, Philemon and Paul, then if he's serving Paul, then he's ultimately serving Philemon. And so he's been helpful to both of them. And then he said, you know, I would like him to stay with me, but I'm not going to force that on you. That's your decision. 
But then in verse 15 comes the second big reveal, which, which Paul believes will be extremely persuasive to Philemon. He tells Philemon that Onesimus was lost to him once, but now he will have him back forever. Now, Philemon, if he hasn't gotten it by now, might not understand what Paul means until the next two sentences. Onesimus is no longer just a slave. He's a follower of Jesus. He's a brother in Christ. This probably was shocking news to Philemon. It would have immediately changed everything he had been thinking about having this runaway slave return to him. And then Paul goes in for the closing argument. He, he leverages his personal relationship with Philemon. He says to Philemon, if we're partners in the gospel, then welcome Onesimus back like you would welcome me. And he goes one step further and he says, listen, if Onesimus owes you for anything, charge it to me. I'll pay for it. This verse, this verse is what makes scholars say that they believe that Onesimus didn't just run away, that he stole something when he ran away. But, but Paul's saying, listen, it doesn't matter. I'll repay whatever it was. And in the next verse, Paul gets very emphatic saying, please know I'm writing this letter to you in my own hand. It's not anybody else. And in that same verse, that one that made us chuckle, Paul reminds Philemon that, that Paul himself is the one who is responsible for Philemon coming to faith in Christ. He is the one who led him to Jesus. So he's made that connection with him. He's, he's gone for the intellectual persuasion, but then in the closing verses, he moves to the emotions. So let's listen to what he says. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. In case Philemon needed a reminder, Paul reminds him that he's asking him as a fellow Christ follower to accept Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. But Paul is appealing to him to handle this, not as a citizen of Rome, not as a citizen of the world, but as a citizen of the kingdom of God that Jesus came and began to put into place. So we get to the end of the message and we go, well, what did Philemon do? Did Paul persuade him to accept Onesimus as a brother in Christ and not a runaway slave? Slave. We don't exactly know, but this is what most scholars believe. They believe that Philemon made it, that the letter of Philemon made it into the Bible for two reasons. First, because Philemon did do exactly what Paul anticipated, and he did even more than the apostle asked him. Onesimus was probably welcomed back into the Colossian church and into Philemon's household, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And with the loving and generous character that Philemon had demonstrated before, they believe also that Onesimus gained his personal freedom. That's the first reason scholars believe this. The second reason is this. Uh, from this letter's inclusion in the Bible, uh, they believe it stems from a tradition that Onesimus went on to become the bishop. Think this through. The bishop of Ephesus. He went from being a slave 
to becoming the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Having demonstrated a zeal for Christ and a tireless devotion to Christian ministry, Onesimus progressed in spiritual maturity to the point of church leadership. And during his lifetime, they believe the church made an effort to collect and publish Paul's letters for distribution among the believers. And so Onesimus must have used his influence as a church leader to make sure that this letter to Philemon was included in the Bible. So, so what we see here in the short book of Philemon is a godly way to handle disagreements, to express our point of view, to even persuade somebody with what we are passionate about. But what if we still disagree? What do we do then? Well, let's, let's talk about godly conflict resolution. You know, disagreements are a normal part of life, uh, but how we handle those disagreements are a choice. And how we handle those disagreements reveal the state of our discipleship. Uh, Pastor Andy Stanley writes about how the recent events that we've experienced in the past couple of years, the, the conflicts that ensued, how they've exposed our discipleship. And he does use the first person plural pronouns through all this because he says it's all of us. He says, you know, when life is predictable, it's natural to lose sight of what we value most, what we fear most. But when a tsunami of uncertainty rolls in, things get real, real quick. Uncertainty doesn't alter our value system. He writes, it exposes our value system. Without any effort on our part, what's really most important surfaces immediately. In seasons of uncertainty, we discover what we value most. Uncertainty and the fear that follows close behind strip away the veneer and reveal what's hidden beneath the surface. And he says, you know, in 2020, conservative Christians in America discovered what we value most. The, the political, the social, the economic, and health crisis of 2020 didn't cause us to misprioritize our values. These events simply exposed what's been true for a long time. While our actions don't always tell the whole story, our reactions do most certainly. They reveal the reality lurking beneath the surface of what we say we believe. And it turns out what we say is most important is not actually what we consider most important. He goes on, he says, you know, our responses in 2020 made that abundantly clear. Even worse, our responses to the events of 2020 made our values embarrassingly clear and people were watching and listening. So consequently, he said, folks who don't embrace our faith discovered most what's most important to all of us as well. And, and while we may be surprised by what 2020 revealed about it, they aren't because they suspected it all along. Our response to the events of 2020 simply confirmed their suspicions. Namely that if you scratch off the veneer of our sermons and our songs and uh, what we say we value, what we truly value is winning and what we fear is losing. And that's the issue when it comes to conflict resolution. We want to win, but we forget what Jesus called us to do. So uh, unfortunately, as Christians, we too often approach 
conflict resolution with a I'm in it to win it mentality. But what does Jesus teach us? According to the standards of the world, Jesus lost. He died, executed on a cross, and lost. But Jesus didn't come to win according to the way the win the world tells us to win. He came to establish a kingdom, but not a kingdom the way the world sees a kingdom. It was an upside-down kingdom, a kingdom where the king serves unto death so that his followers can live forever with God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed a prayer for all of us, for you and for me. And it's in John 17, and you can read the entire prayer, but I want to zero in at the heart of that prayer because it tells us how we're supposed to live and, and how we're supposed to live then helps us understand how we resolve conflicts in a godly way. So listen to what Jesus prayed for you and me. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and me, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus prayed for his followers then and now that we would be united, not divided. That the world would see the body of Christ in unity. Jesus doesn't mean that we would be the same like cookie cutter people. Uh, The apostle Paul gives us insight in that because in the book of Galatians, he wrote this. That there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, it's okay to have differences. Our our differences make us unique. They make us individuals. What's unique about you is different than what's unique about me. And that's important because that sort of defines a little bit about who we are and the person that we get to know and that we get to love. But You know, it's normal to have that uniqueness. It's normal to have different ideas and opinions and views and ways of doing things. But to be divisive and to create disunity amongst fellow believers goes against what Jesus prayed for us. So if if God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit want followers of Jesus to be united than anything that we allow to create disunity goes against what God wants. The Bible would call that sin. So remember what I said earlier. Disagreements are a normal part of life. But how we handle disagreements is a choice that reveals the state of our discipleship. And by the state of discipleship, I really mean how we are following Jesus. Are we following him and embracing the kingdom values that he gives every day, all week long? Or is it just for an hour on Sunday? So what is that 
essential kingdom value that we must embrace as followers of Jesus to maintain unity despite our differences? Let me just quote Jesus himself. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus wasn't in it to win it according to the way the world sees winning. He came to establish a kingdom. He recognized that disagreements amongst humans are normal. We're going to have disagreements, whether it's about one-hit wonders or our favorite sport teams or about politics or about personalities or positions. But the way we handle that conflict as followers of Jesus is telling the world, have we embraced our discipleship that Jesus calls us to? Are we maintaining unity in the body of Christ amongst a diverse and unique group of followers by loving them as Jesus loves them? Or have we chosen to go the way of the world? Let Jesus and the Holy Spirit and God's word make you into the disciple that he wants you to be. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But as they come up, I want to move into a time of prayer. And I want to pray for us. And I have to say this on the front end, you know, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I said may not make sense, but you can become a follower of Jesus today. You can say, all right, I understand he calls me to follow him and to embrace his values as his follower, as his disciple And I want to do that. So in this prayer time, I'm going to give you the opportunity to tell him that you want to believe in him and follow him. But then I'm going to pray for all of us. Because just like Paul and Philemon had this disagreement, how they handled it revealed the state of their discipleship. Above all things, they were going to love one another. And we see that coming through time and time again in that very short letter. And I'm going to pray that for us because disagreements are normal. But division is not what God calls us to. So let me pray. Father, as we gather here, I recognize that there may be someone in this room or watching online that that wants to put their faith and trust in you. And if that's you, very simply, where you are in this room or there, I invite you to pray these words silently to God. It's just a way that you tell Jesus that you want to follow him and be a disciple. So very simply, pray this prayer silently back to him. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he rose again from the dead. Now, Jesus, I I want to follow you for the rest of my life. And we'll say amen to that part of our prayer. And then I'm going to pray for all of us. God, you've called us to be disciples, to follow Jesus and his teaching and your word. Lord, help us embrace what it means to be a disciple. 
to take in your word, your way, the teaching of Jesus more than anything else. Help us understand that disagreements are okay, but as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to look to him to how we navigate those relationships and how we maintain unity in the body of Christ. Fill us with your spirit to love as you love, to speak as you spoke, to care as you care, and to be what you've called us to be. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.